So far, we have seen Jesus going to Pilate, being found innocent, and then um, the Jews, uh, or the the charge that the Jews gave to Jesus in the hands of Pilate is that he was the king of the Jews. Um, Jesus was then uh, like questioned by Pilate, but then Pilate and his guards beat him with whips and mocked him as the king of the Jews by putting a crown of thorns on his head and by putting a bloodied purple robe on his back. Um, the Jews uh, uh, were not appeased by this. They denied their own king of glory um, and king over all, God the Father, um, in order to glorify and idolize Caesar, who is the king of the world and of sinfulness, pretty much. Uh, they invoke the name of Caesar to have the death of Christ happen. Um, and then we have... Pilate finally giving in after they start to throw out charges of Pilate is going to be an enemy of Caesar or not Caesar's friend um, and Pilate finally caves in and he allows Christ to then be taken away and to be crucified um, let me uh, now read these verses uh, verse 17 so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Uh, there they crucified him, and and with him two others, uh, one on either side. And Jesus between them, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Okay, hold on one second. I realized I forgot to do something. Okay. Um, verse 20. Uh, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier. Uh, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And uh, from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
All right. Very, very intense passage. Um, so in the last Bible study, we already established that in order for us to take part in the salvation that Christ gives, uh, it has to come through this tragic death, the most tragic and evil event in history. Um, and we must recognize our part in our sin in the death of Christ. It was our sin that put him up on the cross, and it is Christ's sinlessness that gives us the salvation that he offers. Um, we are coming, or we are pretty much at the end of uh, this unjust and horrid hearing trial and execution that is happening to Christ. Uh, this event stands in solidarity among any other event in history, because, or any other tragic event in history, pretty much. Because when you have events in history, it's either a sinful world interacting with sinful humans, in the case of something like a tsunami or a plague or a hurricane where people die, or you have sinful humans interacting with sinful humans. When you have stuff like genocide and murder and not just killing and all that stuff, um, this event is so much different because this is a sinless man being murdered by sinful humans it is ultimately more tragic because there's no sin to be found in christ there is nothing wrong with christ he is perfect and he is wholly blameless and he is receiving something that is so unjust for uh for essentially no reason we do know now that uh this depravity is used to accomplish the will of God. Um, but yeah, we have already looked at that. But let's take a look at the verses that we have right now. Um, verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side, and Jesus between them. So, uh, Christ is sentenced to crucifixion. That's what the crowd was chanting to crucify him, crucify him. Um, crucifixion is not only uh, the death portion. There is a massive amount of humiliation and torture that comes with the crucifixion. This is a crime, or this is a punishment that is meant for the lowest of low and the worst possible criminals. Um, this death is, um, it's hard to even describe with words of how bad it is. They felt the same way back then because a Latin word was made specifically for the pain felt from crucifixion. You may have heard it before going to different uh, church services where they talk about it, but excruciating <clears throat> is the word that is used, uh, and it is derived from the Latin of cru cruciare, um, which means crucify, crucify, and then it later became excruciate, and then it eventually turned into excruciating, um, but it derives from the pain felt when being crucified because it is like none other. It is completely different and everything about it is made is designed to make you suffer for long periods of time. And it is 
not fun to say the least. It's not like an electric chair or like getting an injection. It is on an entirely different level from the other forms of capital punishment uh, for the most part. Um, and so there's the humiliation part that we look at here of part of the process of crucifixion is uh, carrying your own cross on your back as you walk to the place where you're going to die. In this case, Christ carries his cross from um, from where Pilate's was giving the judgment out to basically pretty much right outside the gates of the city and having to walk that road and have other people watch as they see the um, the those who are condemned being forced to carry the own method in which they are going to die. Um, Christ is also crucified uh, with two others. They crucified him uh, with two others, one on either side, uh, and Jesus between them. So, um, one, this fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12, where Christ is uh, crucified among transgressors, uh, that there's two people who are rightfully condemned next to him, um, and he stands in the center of them, that these people are transgressors, and they have done what is well, what is wrong enough to get crucifixion in that time. I mean, think of it as like just two different versions of Barabbas. Barabbas was the one that the Jews set free. Barabbas was set for cru for crucifixion, but they uh, had Christ, or they wanted Christ to be crucified instead. Barabbas was a traitor, a murderer, and a thief, um, and that is kind of the caliber of these people who are being crucified, and uh, Christ is uh, being crucified with them. Um, so this... John does not give any more details about the the two men who are being crucified here. Um, we have to flip over to Luke 23, uh, 40 through 43. Let me, let me just put that in here real quick. Luke 23, 40 through 43. Um, but the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Uh, we indeed, we, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you can't, when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Um, so on the cross or with these three people, we have the entirety of humanity represented um, in in figures, in a sense. Of we have the wretched sinner who finds no salvation and mocks Christ and doesn't want anything to do with the joy that he offers. This man is going to go before God and he is going to be judged um, as guilty and as sinful um, because he does not have the salvation that Christ offers. Uh, he is going to re receive the just penance for, for how he has lived his life and the sins 
that he has done. Then we have uh, the sinner who has been saved by Christ, um, the one who is still, he's still in the same caliber of the sinfulness of this other man. He has still done truly horrible things to receive crucifixion, but Christ says that that, that isn't enough to stop his saving power, um, that Christ gives this man salvation, and when he steps before God, he is seen as holy and blameless because God is seeing Christ. He is seeing the righteousness of Christ. Christ imp imputes his righteous life onto us to give us salvation. Um, Christ, and then we have Christ in the center, the one who is completely and wholly sinless, who is receiving the same punishment as these people, but he is dying for um, for the man that he saves. That even though he does not deserve this punishment that is happening, he is dying for the one who will stand before God and God looks at him with joy. That God looks at him and finds no wrong in him, even though he has been just as awful as the other man of his repentance and belief in Christ is enough for salvation. That is all we've been told throughout the gospel. Now, we know that in this case, uh, this man dies very shortly after Christ has said, you're going to be in me with heaven. So we don't get to see um, the Christian life play out. But uh, there, there is more to it. There's more to living as a Christian uh, than just believing in Christ in a sense of saying, oh, well, like I said, the sinner's prayer, like seven, like 107, and so, like, I'm good. I, I can just vibe and, like, do whatever I want. No, belief does lead to repentance, and works are not what gets you saved, but it is evidence of you being saved, of if you are saved by Christ, you're going to want to glorify him through the following of his word. Um, important clarification there. Um so on these three crosses, we see the world, the church, and Christ. We have the complete representation of humanity, of Christ being the Savior, the world being, or the church being that who he saves, and the world being the sinners who deny Christ, um, which is kind of interesting, and I find it, uh, I find it very cool that it really can be broken down into those three categories if you go broad enough. Um, before we move on, is there any any questions about this? These two verses, kind of. There's a lot of talking for for these two. If not, I can keep going. No. Okay. Oh, the bombs typing. Uh, you said something about Barabbas. Could we kind of be like him? Um, yes and no. Uh, we don't know what happens to Barabbas after, uh, but we can look at how Christ took our place on the cross. Um, however, we don't know what uh, how Barabbas acts 
after in a sense of I, I don't think that I, I think it's a, a beautiful picture but Barabbas's life is not a model because we we just don't have enough info on it in a sense of um of like yeah Christ took Barabbas's place and that's like it, it's like how every every shadow and type in the Bible is it's it's obviously going to fall short at some point where things point to and indicate to other things of uh, th that's a very good example of like the first portion of it of Christ taking our place on the cross however you can't really derive more from it because that's like the last time Barabbas is mentioned in the Bible um and you don't know if he found salvation in Christ or not but yeah um any other stuff or was that the only only question all right i'm gonna keep vibing we're gonna keep going um we'll sip a water real quick <clears throat> verse 19 um Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross it read Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, uh, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests said to the Jews, or said the Jew, oh gosh. So the chief priests of the Jews <laughs> said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So, um, the inscription, it was customary for people who were being crucified that their inscription of their crime and their name is added onto the cross. This is part of the humiliation process, as well as the torture process of they'd be left up on the cross, um, with nails in their hands and nails in their feet and almost with their legs crossed and um in an almost squatting position they couldn't fully like stand up unless they supported themselves on the nails and it would pull at your pull at your rib cage with your arms being behind your back your full weight and the only way to stand up would be to um would be to push yourself up on these nails that are in your feet um and they would leave you like that for long amounts of time until uh we see later uh, not in this Bible study, but in the next one of of how they'd finally kill you. Um, spoiler, yeah, spoiler of how they finally kill you, and uh, they'd leave you there. And because this is right outside the gates of the city, um, this says near the city. Hebrews uh, thirteen twelve uh, describes it as being like essentially right outside the gates. And like if you look at some of the maps, it'll it'll show that it's like pretty much right outside the gates where people could just like walk there. And some people would of they would walk there and they would just look at these people and they'd read the crimes that they've done. They, they'd see uh, why is this man getting crucified? And it's you become a public spectacle for everyone. You become a thing that people can just come and watch as they look at you suffer and see what horrid thing you could have done to get to this point um but yeah so the inscription was there for for people to come and read um however in the case of christ there wasn't really 
a crime written. Uh, it was just, it was only a true statement being written. Of uh, Pilate wrote that he is the king of the Jews. That um, this is a very true pro- proclamation from Pilate. And he writes it in every single language of the land so that anyone who comes here and looks at uh, Christ can see that this is the king of the Jews. He could have done this to upset the Jews and kind of make fun of them. That's a possibility, um, but if you take away that aspect of it and Pilate, even unintentionally, is writing a very truthful statement. And it almost points to uh, the kingship of Christ that is to come, of Christ is king over all, and this points to, or Christ is king over all, no matter what language, no matter what nation, he is king over the earth, and this is like a small thing where it's, uh, Christ's kingship is being announced to every single possible language in that land, of, uh, um, and if it was done to upset the Jews, I don't know, uh, but We've seen things done to upset the Jews that were already, that like spoke truth with them unintentionally doing it. But also, um, the inscriptions on these things, uh, when Pilate refuses to change it, you, you could not change a sentence after it was written in Rome. This is, the inscription is uh, uh, Pilate's judgment and what he decided to kill Christ for was being the king of the Jews. He has written what he has written. He is not going to change what they have been condemned for. Um, changing that would be having to have a whole new like trial and changing the judgment. Um, so he does not ba- bend over backwards for the Jews in this case. He just kind of he he actually stands his ground for for once and is not showing cowardice to them. Could it be because there's no angry mob behind the chief priests? Maybe. I don't know. But they, um, he did not back down from them in this one case. Um, yeah. Verse 23. Uh, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part uh, for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots uh, for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Um, uh, Something that is kind of worthy of note here is uh, if you... If someone doesn't think that Christ actually died, that he was only just sleeping or like in a coma and he didn't actually resurrect, which are those things that people do say, uh, this is something to point to as well as verse 34 later, um, that there were soldiers there who their only job during these crucifixions was to watch over these people and to ensure that they died, to ensure that... Uh, they there was no chance of living, and even later, like I said in verse thirty four, they would break 
um, the kneecaps of those who were still alive to end, um, to make sure they could not support themselves so they would asphyxiate. Um, but in the case of Christ, when they're, when he was already dead in verse 34, they pierced his side, uh, they stabbed his side, and blood and water came out. Uh, they, there are soldiers here to ensure that these people die. They are not getting away scot-free from this. They are not able to somehow just, like, fake being dead and then live. Like, it's impossible to fake being dead when you're being crucified by these experienced Roman guards. Um, they took his garments. Um, so the, the meaning or the value in this this little interaction that's happening here is not that christ's clothing was expensive they didn't take his clothes because they were extravagant or anything like that it is about the continued humiliation of christ and how deep it goes they left nothing a lot of times in crucifixion they would either leave you naked completely and leave you with no clothes or they would only leave you with a loincloth and they took all the clothes off of Christ's back um, and uh, they divided it among themselves continuing the humiliation that is happening they took everything from the one who is giving himself up for us they left nothing um, and then with the tunic they uh, they casted lots for this this was done in order to fulfill psalm 22:18, which is that little quotation uh in the verses they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots so uh yeah they did exactly as psalm 22:18 said if they divide up the clothing and they cast lots for the the tunic um something of note is uh, the type of tunic that Christ wore. Um, uh, although it, it wasn't super uncommon, um, it's it's in the style of the tunics from Exodus 28-22, which describes the tunics that the people wore, or the high priests wore, of there will be no seams in them, and it will wrap around... Um, and Christ on the cross became our high priest. Um, he became the one who I get. Let me I guess explain what a high priest job is first. A high, a high priest job is to uh, give sacrifice for um, his the his people um, by animal sacrifice as well as himself. Uh, and he does that by going into the tabernacle behind the veil and he makes animal sacrifice and there's incense and there's all that types of stuff. Um, Christ is our high priest, uh, but he is a bit different from other high priests. One, he is making sacrifices for us, but the sacrifice is himself. Uh, that he is uh, the spotless lamb, but he is a the, the perfect spotless lamb of every other animal sacrifice before pales in comparison to Christ's sacrifice because he was wholly spotless. There was not a spot that you could ever detect on him. He was sinless. And now this sinless man, he's not making sacrifices for himself now. He is himself becoming the sacrifice for us. 
his duty goes deeper than the normal high priestly duty. Um, yeah. Kind of interesting stuff. Um, but let's move on to verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, uh, and Mary Magdalene. Kind of funny, there's, there's three Marys there. I don't know what Mary's sister's name is, but I find that kind of kind of funny to read. Um, but verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Um, also important to note here is that the only people by the cross are um, are four women and John of the it's it's very cool to see the courage of these women to be with Christ while he was suffering um, and to be there for comfort and some of these women mainly Mary Magdalene is going to be one of the first people to see the resurrected Christ um, let's see when uh, let's let's go to this little quotation down here in, in verse 26. Um, Woman, behold your son. When we read this, uh, we might instantly think he is like acting misogynistic or something like that, or acting very disrespectful to his mother and not upholding the fifth commandment, which tells us to respect our parents. Um that's not the case. This is uh, saying woman in the Aramaic or in that time. It, it wasn't like uh, a way of disrespect. That was actually the respectful way to like talk to your parents or into someone of honor. And we, we talked about this in John all the way back in John 2, 4, when Christ was asked to make um, water into wine for a wedding. And he uh, addressed her as a woman. Um, it's not disrespectful. It doesn't violate the, the fifth commandment or anything like that. Um, but Christ says, woman, behold your son. And uh, here Christ is upholding the fifth commandment to a ridiculous degree in a sense of uh, this whole thing, this whole interaction that happens of woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Mary is a widow at this point, And Christ's, as he is suffering and dying on the cross, he is still upholding the fifth commandment of uh, giving someone else the responsibility to look after his mother in his death. In this case, it's John. Of uh, John now has the responsibility to look after his mother, and Christ is the one who delegates that. Of he is still caring for his parent, even as he's on the brink of death. And the very next, uh, the very next verse is Christ dies, and he is still giving respect and honor to his mother and giving her the things that she needs. Um, but yeah, that's, that's very interesting to see. It's, 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 
it's encouraging to treat my own parents better in a sense of if Christ is making plans for his mother to be safe and be able to grieve with people and to not be all alone and having one of his trusted disciples take her in then if he's doing all that on the brink of death what stops me from doing that when i've got nothing going on of you know we could be nicer to our parents a lot of the times um let's move on to verse 28 after this jesus knowing that all was now finished uh, said to fulfill scripture i thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of sour wine of a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bought he bowed his head and gave up his spirit so um christ before the cross um he didn't take any wine in mark 16 or mark 15 23 he was offered a like an anesthetic type of wine that would numb the pain of what he's about to experience he did not take that um but now he is taking wine to fulfill uh, psalm 42 2 and psalm 63 1 um he is uh it's not a, a, an anesthetic wine, it's a sour wine. Um, there's a particular uh, thing in, what, what was the word for it? Let me, let me pull up Mark, Mark 15, 20, did I say 21? 23, I'm a dingus, Mark 15, 23. Um, they offered him mixed with mirth. Sorry, the word was mirth, where that type of wine is particular to like, numbing and uh, being able to not feel lots of pain and he denied that and is now taking a wine that has no mirth in it and he does that to again fulfill the scripture as well as to moisten his throat and to be prepared for uh, what's about to happen in verses 30 where he's about to say what I think the most powerful words ever spoken by a man. Um, but then there's also the involvement of a hyssop branch. Why a hyssop branch in, in doing this? Um, well, the hyssop branch is what was used in Exodus 12, 22 uh, to paint the blood on the door in the final plague of Egypt where all the firstborn died. Um, it is uh, This whole thing has been happening during Passover, and if you are a Jewish reader during this, this is similar to like the I am statements that are made throughout John of uh, that happened in Exodus. Uh, oh, I think that's Exodus three twenty three. Don't quote me on that. It's somewhere around there where, where it all harkens back to uh, God answering to Moses as a burning bush. I am. Um, and when Christ uses, uses these statements and you're a Jewish person, either reading this or hearing about this, you're like, this dude is claiming deity, and it's like an instant recognizable thing for them, because this is so ingrained into them. This hyssop branch is so ingrained into Passover, of this is all happening during Passover, and there's hyssop branches to paint the blood onto the doorposts, um, and there's a type of instant connection that people would understand, um, 
of the the kind of depth of the hyssop branch and the Passover and Christ dying and all of that stuff. Um, but we can move on to what I think is the real pinnacle of this passage as well as the culmination of all of Scripture. Um, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Um, there, Christ is now saying that it is finished. Uh, I don't know, I probably haven't said this in a while. Um, I, I've mentioned it in previous Bible studies before, a while back. But um, I have the words, or the word tetelestai, tattooed onto my arm. Um, that is this phrase that we have in the English, it is finished. That is the Greek word that this phrase is, is like, translates to. Tetelestai, of the last word of Christ on the cross. Um, it is uh, the most powerful world, word ever spoken by a man. Um, that... This redemptive act that Christ is doing is now finished. Um, that Christ has now taken on the wrath of God for the sins of the church and for us to have new life. Um, that is now finished. This is the culmination and the climax of all four Gospels and the entirety of script of Scripture, the entirety of redemptive history. This whole thing starts all the way back in Genesis 3.21, where God creates a blood economy for our sins to be forgiven, whereas he condemns Adam and Eve as they go out of the garden, he kills an animal and he puts it onto them. That is the very first sacrifice that we have, and this is the very last sacrifice that we are seeing of Christ saying, it is now finished. This redemptive work is now done. You no longer have to slay uh, lambs for a redemption of sin. It is now I am the lamb and I have redeemed you from sin. It is all finished. The prophecies that Christ have been fulfilling are finished. Finished His priestly duties as a high priest are finished. His perfect obedience at the cross all the way up until death is now finished. He has satisfied the wrath of God and he has... Um, taken power from sin and from Satan, that it is all now finished. Um, and even though this is such a tragic event, like I illustrated at the beginning, of a completely sinless man being killed by sinful people, and we have to count ourselves among those sinful people, it is our sin that puts them up on the cross, that this is a word, tetelestai, it is finished, that calls for praise and for joy and for the glorification of God because that what he has come down to do, he has come, he has put on flesh, he stepped down from his seat of glory and come down in perfect humility to then live a perfect life and then die on the cross, a brutal death for us, for uh, his bride, the church. And we should celebrate that now that we have new life in him, that that word calls for joy and for just so much happiness in us. And it calls for a 
belief in God and a belief in his promises, because this is the finishing of so many promises that have been happening throughout the Bible and that Christ has made. Um, yeah, but then uh, ending of verse 30, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Christ was willingly uh, arrested, humiliated, beaten, and tortured. He is laying down his life on his own terms uh, in accordance to the perfect plan that is happening. And this is, uh, and Christ is giving up his life. His life is not being taken from him. His life is being given up by him. Um, of, he is not kicking and screaming as he's being arrested and beaten and tortured. No, and he is offering up his life for us in this perfect plan. Um, Christ came into this world willingly putting out on flesh, and now he is going out of this world willingly. Christ is still in control, um, even if he's allowing this to happen. Of uh, We saw earlier in John, of when his hour had not yet come, no one could do anything to capture him. None of them moved. But now that his hour has come, he is allowing his life to be given up. And uh, now Christ is dead. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this time that we're able to read your word and to see your wonderful sacrifice on the cross, even though there is such a horrific nature to it, Lord, that we can have the good gift that comes from it, God, that on that cross you completed redemptive history, Lord, and that we are able to take part in it. Uh, I just pray that throughout the rest of this week we will, um, we will just have constant remembrance of it, that we will never forget the salvation that you've given us and the the horrible means in which it took to obtain, um, requiring the death of innocence for us to have life with you, Lord. Um, I just pray that, um, I just pray for Maggle and his father in, in the, um, leave of absence, that his dad will be able to glorify you and to, to stay sane during it. And I also pray for pray for Rosex with going to a new school that will go smoothly, Lord. And I pray for the rest of us, because uh, I think we're all in very different situations, and you know our hearts, Lord, whether whether we are still just doing nothing because of corona, or if we're back to work and back on school or anything like that, Lord. I just pray that we'll, we'll glorify you in all that we do, and that we can read your word and to pray to you, Lord. Um, it's in your wonderful and holy name. Amen. Amen.